The vision for this church, uh, since we, you know, probably, you know, 20, 20 some years, uh, our vision has been community transformation. And uh, today I want to revisit uh, some of the ideas behind that. And then uh, in the first three weeks of July, I'm going to preach a series of sermons on uh, the stones. Now, if you remember, we changed our name. We were, when we started the church, it was Westland Fellowship. We changed it to Riverstone uh, pretty early in the game. And the story behind the name change is that the story of Joshua, when the Lord tells him to go into the river and to pull out stones from the river and build an, an altar of remembrance. And, and the purpose of the stones was when generations following said, what do these stones mean? Uh, they would remind them of all of the things that God had done. Now, in our case, we pulled out stones from the river to build an altar of expectation. Uh, our stones represent things that we're believing God for, things that we want to see God do. And so there are 12 stones that we identified um, 20 years ago. And I'm going to uh, revisit those stones uh, in the first three weeks of July. So you can come and be a part of that. It should be fun. So the vision for community transformation, uh, just to give you some explanation of what that means, um, it's not really community reform. We're not, we're not after community reform. I'm, I'm, I'm not against community reform. Uh, but it, that's more of a, a human-driven thing. Uh, reform, it's about changing laws and changing rules and getting people to behave and that kind of thing. Uh, but transformation is different than that. Uh, when we say community transformation, really what we're talking about is something that only God can do. It's something that only God can do because transformation has to do with being changed, literally being transformed by the touch of God, the presence of God. And, and I, I'm sure that, that many of you, if not most of you, have been in a situation where you've walked into a place, a space, maybe it was a place like this, but you've walked into a room or a space where the presence of God could be felt. Uh, we, we call it the felt presence, or sometimes we call it the manifest presence, but I, I can vividly remember times in my life walking into a room where the presence of God was so strong that it would almost knock you to your knees. And I can remember one time in, in particular where I walked into a room where the presence of God was so strong, it was shocking to me, so shocking that I turned around and walked back out took a deep breath and walked back in just to see, you know, is this my imagination? This seems so profound. And the presence of God, literally, the atmosphere was different in the room. Now, my question has always been this. If God can do that in a room, why wouldn't he do it in a city? If he could do it in a city, why wouldn't he do it in a county or a region or a nation? Now, there's some precedent for that. Um, there are stories of, of revival and there are stories of awakening where the presence of God literally changed the atmosphere of a region. Uh, maybe my favorite story is from the early 1900s, around 1902, 1904, uh, the Welsh Revival. Now, if you've, many, many of you have read the history of that. There was a man named Evan Roberts. He was in his early 20s, about 26, I think. And he was praying for his nation and really uh, asking the Lord. His prayer was, Lord, bend me. 
bend me. And what, what he meant by that was, I want to be bent toward your will and away from mine. I, I want to lean towards what you want and lean away from what I want. And he prayed that prayer, bend me, bend me, bend me. And then one night, uh, he spoke to the youth group of a church, and there weren't many people there, 14, 15 teenagers. And he spoke this message, it's a pretty, pretty simple message, very profound though. He spoke the message of confess all known sin, let go of all doubtful habits, profess Jesus publicly, and obey the Spirit quickly. Just four four things. What happened after that was a revival that literally swept the entire nation. Over the course of the next year, uh, it's estimated that 100,000 people came to the Lord, uh, really just springing out of one youth group meeting. 100,000 people. It had such a, a far-reaching effect in the, in the nation that judges had to get second jobs because there were no cases to try because there was no crime. Jailers had to get second jobs because they were, the, the jails were empty. Saloons closed down. But maybe the funniest part of it to me is that the horses and the mules on the farms didn't know how to pull their plows. They didn't know which way to go, when to stop, when to go, when to turn left, when to turn right, because the farmers were no longer cursing. <laughs> so there's certainly precedent for God just changing the atmosphere in a region. And, and we have believed that God has a dream uh, for West Cobb and for, and for Greater Cobb that's different than what we see. Uh, we believe that God has a dream for Riverstone that's different than what we see. And what we want to pray and what we want to believe for is that we would lean into God's will, lean away from our own, and ask, ask God to have his way in this place and, and to use this place as a part, not all of, but a part of what he wants to do uh, in our community. So I want to use the story today of, of Hezekiah. We've, we've talked about his story before, but I just want to circle back and remind ourselves of where our vision came from and kind of you know, one of the uh, scripture stories uh, that is inspirational for us as we seek to go forward. Hezekiah was a king, and he was one of the good guys. Uh, Israel had a lot of bad kings, um, had some good kings, had some bad kings. Hezekiah was, was a good king. He was one that was said to be like David. He had a heart like David and that he, he loved worship. Now, his father, Ahaz, was one of the worst of the bad kings. Uh, you can read about Ahaz. He did all sorts of atrocious things, but what he's known for is moving Israel into the place of pagan worship. He moved them out of worship of the one true God into a place of idolatry and pagan worship, so much so that he actually sacrificed one of his own sons uh, to a pagan fire god. Now, when Ahaz passes away, 
his son Hezekiah takes over. He's 25 years old, and he takes over as king, and he has a heart for worship. And so one of the first things that he does is he seeks to restore worship to the proper place uh, in the nation of Israel. So we're going to begin uh, 2 Chronicles 29, beginning at verse 1, gives us some of the story. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abaha, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our parents were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to, to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. Then these Levites set to work. I'm going to stop there and, and skip ahead uh, to verse 36. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to us today and that you would just remind us of, of things that you've told us before. Uh, remind us of things that you've called us uh, to give ourselves to and that we would give ourselves more fully to who you are and to who you've called us to be. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So before I, I jump into uh, what I would call the five stages of uh, Hezekiah's process, which I believe are five stages uh, that God has set before us to, to engage what he wants to do here. Uh, I want to say one thing about Hezekiah. There, there's one glitch uh, in Hezekiah's reign. And uh, uh, history documents the fact that Hezekiah isolated this move of God. He, he did not focus on the generation that was coming in behind him. He, he was only concerned with the peop his people, his generation. And so the revival of worship that sprang up during his reign ended when his reign ended. And uh, I remember when I was uh, in my early 30s, I, I would, we had just moved to Athens and 
I was 32 years old, and I'd been invited to speak at a, at a large Methodist church in the area to present our vision uh, for the Wesley Foundation. And I opened up by reading our vision statement, and the vision statement goes something like this. We at the Wesley Foundation are committed to raising up a new generation of Christian leaders. And then it goes on after that. But I made my talk, and, and then I opened it up for questions. And the first question, first question from a sweet little gray-haired 80-something-year-old woman. Her question was, why do we need a new generation of leaders? Now, give me some grace here. I was 32. I looked at this sweet lady who could be any of our grandmothers, and I said, because you're dying. I didn't mean she was dying. I meant that every generation dies. Every generation passes. And we can't be focused just on ourselves. Each generation has a responsibility to pass what they've learned to the next. And that's the way that we live in increase. It's supposed to be that we learn what, we, what God teaches us and we pass it to the next generation so they start where we finished. They're not supposed to have to go back and start over. And yet so many generations are having to start over because we've just become self-centered. And, and we fail to turn around and see that one of our greatest callings and responsibilities is the, the generation that's coming. And so I say that to just to say that um, if, if you're my age or older or maybe even a little bit younger, and it seems like sometimes that the things that we do are focused more on people that are younger, Praise God. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it feels like that. Because we have got to provide for the next generation so they can start where we end, so they can go farther, not just have this endless cycle of start and stop and start and stop and start and stop. So that's the end of the first sermon. So uh, there are stages that Hezekiah takes his people through and the first stage we'll call the stage of preparation. And in the stage of preparation, he calls out to the people and he says, get ready. Get ready for what God is going to do. Get ready. Prepare yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Set yourself apart. And really, preparation, the preparation stage, really, it's exactly that. It's, it's the time of searching your heart and asking God to search your heart. And letting, it's a time of letting go. You got to let go of things that are holding you back. Let go of the things that have distracted you and have become an obsession to you. Let go of things that have become false priorities in you and come back to the place of true priority. And the true priority of life is what? The true priority of life is to worship God. That's the thing that we were created to do. We were created, we were made to worship. It's the one thing that we will do forever. There are so many things that are important things that we give ourselves to now, that will fade away. There will come a time when evangelism is not necessary. 
There will come a time when discipleship is not necessary. There will never be a time when worship will stop. Worship is forever. Worship is the one thing that we will do for eternity. It is the true purpose, the thing that we were created for. And Hezekiah is saying to his people, we have lost our way. We have lost our way because worship has ceased in Israel. The temple has been defiled and been desecrated and broken down. The doors were shut. The very first thing he does when he takes over his king is he opens the doors to the temple and says, come worship, get ready. Get ready for what God is going to do. And he calls the people to get their hearts ready. There are always things that God wants to do in us before he can do anything through us. And sometimes we get a little excited, we get overzealous, and we want to run out and do, we want to change the world, and we try to get, we get a little bit ahead of God, and we go before he says to go. And what Hezekiah is saying to his people is, before we go, before we go, we have to prepare. And we prepare by opening our hearts to the Lord and saying, God, show me. Show me who I am. I want to say that, that the place of preparation, one of, the, one of the key places in preparation is worship. Because you will find your identity in worship. You will. You will find your identity in worship. I said that we were created to worship. But our creation, we were created with both an outgoing purpose and an incoming purpose. And we were made to worship God, but we were also made to be loved by God. We are the object of his affection. That's why he made us. He created us to love us. And our worship is actually a response to that love. And your identity is birthed in the realization that you are loved by him. You are. The things that we talk about, the distractions, the things that get in the way, the things that we need to get out, the false priorities, those are not, listen to me, those are not things that keep him from loving you. They're things that keep you from loving him. He loves you. He always has. He always will. Romans says there's nothing that can separate us from his love. His love is perfect. His love is perfect, it's full, it's complete. It doesn't need to change. It never will. There are things in us that have to change so that we can more fully engage uh, who he is and, and really more fully engage who we are. There are always things that God wants to do in you so that he can do things through you. Now, here's the thing you need to know about this preparation stage. It lasts forever. <laughs> it lasts forever. You know, if you've been frustrated, oh, I'll be glad when this preparation thing is over. You know, when God stops teaching me things and I can just do all the things, well, it doesn't, it never ends. <laughs> preparation is forever in this life. There are always things that God wants to teach you. There's always a shaping. There's always a, a forming, a refining. But there does come a place where God begins to send us and use us and do in us. And so the preparation stage is that place of 
learning our identity. And then the celebration stage is the second stage, and that is the place where worship increases. We've put our priority back on worship. The celebration stage. Hezekiah opens the doors. His dad had closed the doors of the temple. He brings back in all of the things that they used for worship, all the things that his dad had taken out. They consecrate the room. They consecrate the temple, and they invite the people to come back in. And literally, the atmosphere of the city changes in 16 days. In 16 days, as they give themselves to worship. The place of worship is one of the most important places when it comes to transformation. Celebration is the place of worship, learning to truly enjoy the presence of God, learning to engage the presence of God, moving from the place where you know, we're just kind of, kind of there and kind of trying to figure it out and kind of trying to figure out why the people around us are, are, are acting you know, the way they're acting, and then in finally learning to engage a living God. Learning to embrace worship from the attitude of the kind of God he is rather than the kind of person you are. Everything else stops. When we get to the place of realizing that our very purpose in life is to worship him, and everything else stops. And we learn to worship that way because God wants us to learn to live that way. We don't want worship to just be what happens here. God's goal in us and for us is that worship wouldn't just happen here in this room, but that worship will be something that's going on in us all the time, everywhere we go and that we would carry worship from here into all the places that we touch. That's God's desire. That's his calling for us. Now, he calls us here, I believe, to learn how to do that. There's always been a place for corporate worship with the people of God. And I believe it's twofold. I believe one of the reasons there's always been a place for corporate worship is because it's the thing that we're designed to do, and we need to do it together. We need to, to worship God together. But I also believe that God has carved out this place for corporate worship because it's easier. It's easier to do it here together. He wants us to do it out there. It's easier if we learn it here first and then take it out there. And so God takes us through this time of preparation into this time of celebration because God wants to build a house of worship, a house of worship that can travel, a house of worship that is not stuck in one place, but a house of worship that can travel. It can go out into the community, into the grocery stores, into the marketplace, into the schools, into the neighborhoods, a house of worship that's mobile. Now, after the people that Israel has called, they, he calls them to prepare, to consecrate themselves, and then they come together uh, to celebrate and to worship. Now, one of the things we need to recognize is that they get delayed 
in the process, they have to actually delay the Passover. And the reason they have to delay the Passover is because the, the leaders, the priests in particular, that God calls to prepare and to consecrate themselves and get ready for what God is about to do, they don't do it. They don't do what Hezekiah tells them to do, and because they don't, things get delayed. And so they've got people coming, people wanting to worship and wanting to engage what God is doing, and they can't because the leaders have been slack. Let me just say, if you're here in this room, you're a leader. If you're here, you're a leader. Don't be slack. God is saying to you, prepare. Consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart for his purposes. In these days, there are things that God wants to do. And he wants you to be a part of that. So when he says, get ready, get ready. The third thing that they do is they invite. So the third step uh, is invitations. We have preparation and celebration. The third stage is invitation. Chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. So he sends out this invitation, and they come. And now they have to wait a little bit so they can get the leaders up to speed. But after worshiping and after being in the presence of the manifest presence of God, uh, they send out this invitation and people come. Now, not everybody comes. And I know sometimes we, we're a little nervous about inviting people. What if they say no? What if they're mean to me? <sighs> We think of all sorts of reasons not to invite people. Well, listen to how it's described their, their response. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? They, this is verse, verse 10 of chapter 30. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. So, they have this invitation, they send out this invitation, they take it to people, they're going, you know, here and there to invite people to come, come back to the Lord, come to the house of the Lord. And they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. But they didn't let the fear of the world deter them. They continued. They still invited and invited and invited. And, and by the end, it says in verse 13, many People were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate a very large assembly. Not everyone that you invite will come. And guess what? That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to invite. And it's God's responsibility to produce fruit. Your only job is obedience. If God says, hey, invite that person right there, and you invite them and they say no, even if they laugh you to scorn and mock you, you haven't failed. You've only failed if you don't do what God tells you to do. I'll tell you a story about failure. <laughs> I'm in a church service one time, 
And this was when I was a youth pastor. So years ago, decades ago, I hate to even mention how long ago. I'm on about the row right over in there, about the fourth or fifth row. And there was this person over here on this side of the church that I knew was going through a rough time. And as we're in worship, God speaks to me and says, I want you to pray for that person. And I'm looking over at them and I'm thinking, this is kind of awkward. They're on the other side of the room. I'm on this side of the room. You know, it would attract too much attention. I'll just pray for them right here. I'll just pray for them. God said, no, I want you to go and I want you to pray for that person. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Lord. If they go down to the altar during ministry time, I'll go up there and pray for them. Sure enough, ministry time starts, there they go. And they're down at the altar and I'm like, eh. Okay, Lord, actually, if when they get up from the altar, if instead of going back to their seat over there, if they come over here where I am, then I'll pray for them. And sure enough, they get up and they walk right past me. And I didn't move. That's, that's failure. I was totally disobedient. But guess what? That doesn't make me a failure. That just means I failed in that moment. It's an event. It's not an identity. And many times since then, God has said, hey, go pray for that person. Go pray for that person. And I have said yes. And so I, I say to you, uh, God is calling you to be an inviter. And some of those that you invite will laugh at you, maybe. Some of them will just be rude. Some of them will say no. But if even just one comes, it's worth it all. So they send out this invitation and people come and it's a large assembly. And the fourth stage in this process is what we call transformation. And and that's the thing we were talking about in the beginning. Because what we want is not just for something really cool and exciting to happen here, right? What we want is there something that happened in here that can't stay here? That's so powerful and so incredible that it can't stay here. It has to explode out into the streets. Transformation is when what happened in the church in stages one and two and three starts to happen in the city. Where everywhere we go, revival is springing up. Transformation is happening As we embrace God's presence and as we give ourselves more and more to worship and more and more make his priority our priority, we will see that God will stir something here that can't stay here. And that's when transformation really begins to happen. And then the last thing that happens uh, is infiltration. Infiltration is where what God has done and, and has spilt out into the community is literally launched into the world. The people who experienced what God was doing in Israel couldn't stay there. It says that they left and went to all the cities of Judah. Nobody told them to do that. They just did it. Some of them because that's where they lived. So they took 
what they experienced in God's house back to their house. And, and that wouldn't be a bad thing to do, would it? And so God takes this saturation and he, he just infiltrates and saturates, takes this transformation and saturates an area uh, with his presence. Um, we have, since about 2007, uh, we have tried to give ourselves to church planting. And uh, there have been times in our history when people have thought and even said, and, and some of them have said to me, that church planting has hurt us. And I, I understand why you would say that. I do. I, I get it. Um, we have sent a lot of people away from here. And some of them were your friends. Some of them were your family. And an awful lot of them were really good, godly people. And, and if we had never planted another church, there's no doubt that River Stone would be bigger than she is. But I also believe in my heart that because we have planted seven churches, we are seven times more likely to reach the lost, seven times more likely to advance the kingdom. We made a conscious choice to grow out instead of up. And uh, I will never, never back away from that. It's, it's what I believe God has put us, us here to do. And so, um, uh, there's still more that God wants to do. And, and I, I do believe God wants increase for this place. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, um, a few weeks ago, I talked about going back to one service. And some of you cheered. And I understand that as well. Um, <laughs> the reason I wanted to go back to one service is because I want, I want the room to be full again. And in the days and weeks that have followed, I have been challenged. I have felt challenged by the Lord. Um, I know you, you want the room to be full, but why not fill it twice? And so I'm, I'm, I'm balking. I'm hesitating. Uh, I'm still trying to hear clearly uh, what's next. Uh, but for now... Um, I'm praying that God would take that decision out of my hands, that he would make it impossible for us to do one service, that we wouldn't, there wouldn't be enough chairs. Uh, and when that happens, we'll plant some more churches. Lord Jesus, we love you, and uh, we want to engage your presence because we know that you created us. You made us for yourself. You created us as an object of your affection. We want to receive your love and respond with worship, Lord. That's, that's what we're made for. But Lord, we, we don't want it just to be us. We want the whole world to know that. We want the whole world, all of our friends and our family and our neighbors. 
We want everyone that we know to experience in you what we experience in you. And so we, we pray, Lord, do in us everything that needs to be done so that you can do through us everything you want to do. In Jesus' name.